Hi friends, Pastor Stephen here, and welcome to the Oakham Church Podcast. We're at episode nine, and this week we're continuing to look at this issue, this theme, this weird and wonderful thing called love. We're focusing on what remains, on what endures, on what lasts. In this crazy, chaotic, dark, scary, unknowable, uncontrollable kind of time and season that we find ourselves in, we are looking at what remains, at what is real, at what is true, and that is faith and hope and love. 1 Corinthians 13, again, says this, If I speak in the tongues of men, or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, but I have faith that moves mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Just before we start with the podcast, I just want to check in with you guys and see how you're doing, how you're feeling. Um, It's currently Wednesday morning as I record this, and um, given all the announcements that have happened um, over the weekend to do with lockdown two from our prime minister and the government and that um, our friends over the pond in the US have just been through their election and it was uh, the the casting of the votes yesterday. Uh, There is all this kind of turmoil and upheaval and people not really know where they stand, not really really knowing um, how tomorrow is even going to look. And um, as we approach Thursday, uh, we're moving into the lockdown two, electric boogaloo. And um, yeah, we just, uh, we just need a a time to be able to just breathe, I think. Time to be able to just um, take it in and be able to sit with it. Um, It can feel very heavy and a temptation can be to either get really really angry and fight against it and you see it in all sorts of ways with protesting and, and anti-masks and, and all sorts of things and, and that's one way of dealing with it. Another way is to just kind of um, busy yourselves and kind of bury yourself in work and distract yourself to death almost with either um, activities and doing things at work or going to the gym or build, taking up new hobbies or just kind of completely numbing out to Netflix and just not moving off the sofa or the bed and just completely binging an entire series of something and we all have our own weird kind of coping mechanisms so I just wanted to honour this time really and just give us the, the time and the space to just kind of breathe out and breathe in and just be able to sit with it and some of these themes are going to come up Um, through this story that we're going to look at today because these themes are what are happening throughout all of society. They're the themes that are happening in in and through me as well. 
I just want to encourage you um, if you've got any um, comments, questions, suggestions, thoughts, ideas for future podcasts, even if you just want to uh, send me prayer requests or or you want someone to talk to, someone to message, um, please get in touch um, through this podcast's email. It's theocp at mail.com. That's theocp at mail.com. Last week on the pod and, and last Sunday as well, we saw how Jesus went through Samaria and went to the woman at the well and met her where she was at. And while the disciples were, were away getting food, Jesus went to the one who was empty and who needed to be filled, to the one who was broken and needed to be made whole. And that evidently is still what Jesus does today. He goes straight all the way through the Gospels. He goes to the, to the least expected, to the outcast, the oppressed, the marginalised, the minority. All those people that are mentioned as the least of these throughout the Hebrew Bible. The, the widow, the orphan, the foreigner, the poor. He goes to all of these people up, down at the bottom and out at the edges of society. That's who Jesus gravitates towards. And Jesus breaks down these barriers that have been put up. Why? Because that's what love does. Over and over again, Jesus goes out, doesn't he? So there last week, we saw he went to Samaria where no other Jews would go to. He goes to the well in the middle of the day where no one would ever go anyway. And he goes to this woman um, who a rabbi would have nothing to do with and a Jew would have nothing to do with the Samaritan. They wouldn't go anywhere near each other, let alone talk to each other. And he goes to this woman who not even the other Samaritan people from the village, not even her own family want anything to do with. And he goes to her and he breaks down systematically these barriers. He knocks wall after wall after wall down until she is left rushing back to that village and going and fetching all these people who wouldn't even give her the time of day normally because she wants to bring them to come and meet the man, meet this Jesus, meet the Messiah, the man who knew everything about her. And over and over again through physical illnesses and psychological illnesses and mental illnesses and all these different difficulties that people face throughout the Gospels, Jesus comes to them. No one in their right mind would go anywhere near a leper. That would make them unclean. No one in their right mind would want to have anything to do with a man begging on the street or the blind man sat outside the temple or the people that were demon-possessed or chained up in a graveyard naked and crazy. No one wants to go anywhere near them in case that thing, whatever that is, rubs off on them. But Jesus knew something that they didn't. And it was that actually Jesus, Jesus' love, would rub off onto those people, not the other way around. So I just want to read you um, a story now. Um, It's not a miraculous kind of miracle, kind of wow type story from the Gospels. But I think it is just as impactful and just as insightful and teaches us just as much about Jesus's love for other people as any of those other miracle stories do. It's from Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 38. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village 
where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed, only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Few things are needed. Actually, only one thing is needed. And Mary has chosen what is better. Mary has chosen from all of those many things that Martha was distracted with, right down to the few things that are important and needed, right down to the one thing that is only the most thing, and that is time with him. That is the love of Christ. And Mary has chosen that one thing and it will not be taken away from her. This is what I want us to focus on today. I want us to again look at love, but at a love that lasts. Love does things to us, doesn't it? Love can make us act crazy. Love can make us do and say and think all sorts of things that we never thought we would do or say or think, all because of love. And so in this story, we're told that Jesus is going to the house of Martha, who is, her sister also lives there, and her brother, but we're not, we're not told about him in this story. But we, he's going to the house of Martha, Mary and Lazarus as he is on his way to Jerusalem. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to the village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. This kind of thing seemed to happen all the time to Jesus in the Gospels, where he's on his way somewhere else. He's on his way to that place or he's going there to see that particular person. And then somewhere along the way, he's disrupted by someone who needs healing or who needs to talk to him or who needs to ask a question or who needs to divert his attention from where he's going to this thing over here for a moment. And we see over and over again in the stories, we're told that Jesus is moved, that Jesus feels compassion for someone or for a group. And then he acts. He feels this deep sense of love for these people. Now, Bethany was only a few miles away from Jerusalem. So we see that Jesus is so close he was almost there. He and the disciples were nearly at that destination that they have been heading to for a while. But then he gets disrupted. Then he takes that detour. He turns off the road. Jesus, like we saw last week with the woman of the well, Jesus was on his way to somewhere else. But somewhere along the way, this detour happens. Um, the story of Joseph in the Old Testament is a perfect example of this. Joseph was um, one of 12 brothers. Uh, that's a blessing as, uh, as it is. Um, in that day and in that culture, having, having a son was considered a blessing from God, let alone 12. 
and um, Joseph was in the prime position really because he wasn't the eldest son so he didn't have all of that kind of pressure and that expectation on him to to be a certain way or to do a certain thing and he wasn't the youngest so he didn't have that kind of stigma and carrying around with him the thing of being the baby of the group all the time either and he wasn't that kind of weird somewhere in the middle bunch where you can't forget you can't really remember their names and they just kind of get lost in the crowd with all the other brothers no joseph was in prime position because joseph we're told from the outset of this story, was the favourite. In fact, Jacob, his dad, had two wives and those two wives had a maidservant each as well. But Jacob had a favourite wife and that favourite wife gave her this son, which was his favourite son. And he let everyone know it. Not only did Joseph know that he was the favourite, but everyone knew that he was the favourite. He had the coat, didn't he? If we know from the story, this coat of many colours. And Joseph had no problems whatsoever reminding his brothers of every possible opportunity that he was dad's favourite. He didn't have to go and do those chores that nobody else wanted to do. He didn't have to go and work for hours in the fields with all the other brothers. He didn't have to do all the grotty jobs and all the other stuff that they had to do because he was the favourite. He could do whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted, with whoever he wanted. And Joseph loved it. And if we're honest, as we're reading this story, Joseph was a big head. Joseph was proud and arrogant and stubborn. And if he was my brother, I'd want to hit him. I'd want to throw him in a pit. I'd want to get rid of him. He was this constant reminder of his privilege and your lack of privilege. And so Joseph would go around and do what he wanted when he wanted it. Over and over again, he would... um, kind of flaunt it in front of his brothers until the point where, well, Joseph at this point in his story, I'm sure thinks he knows exactly where his life's going. Life is good. He's on easy street, isn't he? He, he, And his life is mapped out for him. He's the favorite. He's gonna get all the best of the best from that family. He's gonna get all the blessing, all the wealth, all the property, all the animals, anything and everything that he could possibly want. He was gonna get it. Joseph knew who he was and knew whose he was. He was his dad's son, he was Jacob's son and he was Jacob's favorite. And that was the way that his life was headed. He was gonna get the best and only the best for the rest of his life. And he was more than happy with that. Except that's not how his life went, is it? Over the kind of story arc and the narrative of Joseph's life, we see him um, being being betrayed by his brothers, being conspired about by his own flesh and blood and betrayed. We We see him having that, being stripped of that coat and being thrown down into that pit and then being sold into slavery, being treated like an animal, treated like not a non-human. We see him having to work under people like um, Potiphar and Potiphar's wife. We see him being thrown into prison. We see him being thrown onto death row. We see him being dragged in front of Pharaoh, the, the highest person in Egypt. This is not how his life was meant to go. This is detour after detour 
after detouring Joseph's life. And that's what we see happening in Jesus's life in the uh, Gospels, where he thinks he knows where he's going. Well, I'm sure he knows where he's going, but maybe for as far as the disciples are concerned, they were on their way to Jerusalem. As far as they were concerned, they were heading up to the city. They knew where they were going. And then all of a sudden, and things change. We take a detour. That's how our lives go as well, isn't it? How often do we think we know where we're headed? We think we know how our story's going. We think we know what's in the future. And then something happens and the detour happens and everything has changed. I said on Sunday, how different our lives seemed and felt in January and February of this year. We thought we had plans. We knew what was going to happen. We got... Um, trips planned and holidays booked and maybe there were weddings going to happen and birthdays and celebrations and and all the good stuff that happens throughout the year and the events at church and and everything was going to happen and everything was gearing up the way that we were expecting and then all of a sudden here comes March and April and May and June and July and August and September and October and now November one detour after another. You see, Jesus was intending to go to this big bustling city and yet he ended up in this little humble home. But in those moments, in the moments in this story and in the moments in our lives, in those moments where it feels unknown or uncontrollable or like this detour and this distraction has taken place, in those times, when all we can say are things like, God, are you even here? And God, can you hear me? God, do you even care? Like Martha will later say in the story, she says, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Don't you care? And we hear echoes of that from a story from a few episodes back in the pod, don't we? Where those disciples are in the boat in the storm as Jesus is asleep on the cushion and they wake, shake him awake and they say, Jesus, don't you care that we're going to die in this storm? Don't you care that my sister has left me to do all my work? Don't you care that all my plans have been ruined in 2020? Maybe you're feeling disconnected and lost or like you've gone off course this year, like like 2020 has completely gone off the rails. Well, I want you to see from this detour story here with Jesus that even in those moments, God can take any situation and turn it for his glory. God can take any life and use it to reflect God's goodness. You see, back in Joseph's story, ultimately when it gets to the end and he is the... the the um, prince in Egypt is uh, is Egypt's number two, and he's, he's the life of his brothers is now in his hands. And this great reversal of the storyline, and he is able to offer them peace, and offer them forgiveness, and offer them unconditional love. He even recognizes and puts a voice to it at the end of the story, where he says, "What you meant for bad, God used for good." God can take it and use it, can turn it like a, 
like a 70-sided gem like the Torah is described by rabbis and can turn it and twist it and see things from a different angle and use it in a way for good. In all those unknowable times, God knows. In those uncontrollable times, God is in control. So in this story in Luke 10, we're told that this house that Jesus and the disciples go to belongs to Martha. This is significant. This isn't Lazarus as the brother, as the male. This isn't Lazarus's house. This is Martha's house. Martha is the boss. Martha is the breadwinner. She's the one in charge. She's got the skills to pay the bills. And she has to put up with her kind of uh, loser little brother and her, her hippie, happy-go-lucky, flaky little sister Mary. And to us living in the West in 2020, I think we can probably all more relate to Martha, can't we? We can all feel more like Martha in our lives, where you have to be the achiever, you have to be the earner, you have to be the, the doer. And notice in this story that the more that Mary is just sitting at Jesus' feet, the more that Mary is not achieving, and the more that Mary is not earning, and the more that Mary is not helping, the more that Mary is not doing, what's happening to Martha? Martha is getting more and more angry and frustrated. And so she just gets more busy. You can almost picture the scene of the cupboard doors banging and the pots and pans rattling and those huffy noises coming from the kitchen as this kind of passive, aggressive kind of statement on how Martha, poor old Martha's doing all the work while Mary's sitting on the floor on a cushion, loving life. There's these storms going on in the kitchen. Um, Martha, much like with the disciples with their buckets, trying to bail out this situation. Martha with her pots and pans is trying to bail out this situation. And all the while there is a stillness and a quietness and a peace and a calm and a love going on in the very next room as we see that Mary is what? Sitting at the feet of Jesus on a cushion. Pots and pans and noise and chaos and buckets and Martha in the kitchen in the storm. And here in the next room, in the peace of the boat, Jesus' feet sat on a cushion, is Mary. And I think that's something that we can probably relate to as well, isn't it? Where the more frustrated we get, the more we act like Martha in that kitchen with the pots and pans... We just get busy, don't we? If things are annoying us, if things are, uh, are getting to us, we don't automatically straight go to confrontation. Some of us might do, but on the whole, most of us don't go there straight away. First of all, we try and deal with things ourselves. We try and fix things. We try and bail out with those buckets ourselves. And we just get busy. We do more. We say, okay, well, if no one's coming to help me, if no one's coming to rescue me, then I guess I'm gonna have to do it myself. And so we try desperately to fill our time so that we don't have chance to stop and to reflect and to assess and do that inner work so that we don't have the chance to notice what's going on in us. It's very interesting what's going on kind of in the, in the placement and the geography of this story. So there's these things going on where 
Martha's using this activity and using this busyness and all the things that need to get done that are good and right and true as a as someone in that culture and in that day it was very very important that you were the host that you could prepare food and offer um, refreshment and a place for weary travellers to come and and find the rest and find the peace that they need and to be able to feed them in that culture was a way of honouring them so it was a good thing that Martha was doing but she was using that good thing as a distraction and that distraction was creating a distance between them wasn't it see even though Martha was only literally feet away in another room just in that kitchen area maybe even in the same room as what's going on with the rest of it might be this kind of open plan thing going on Martha is putting that distance up so even though she's only literally in the next room she may as well have been on the other side of the planet because with all the distraction, all the busyness, all the activity, all the earning and striving and doing was just putting more and more distance between her and that one thing that mattered, that one thing that was important, and that was time with Jesus. So this distraction creates a distance, and then this distance in turn creates this distortion where Martha has now got herself up to this point of like stir craziness and she's boiled herself with the pots and pans. She's bubbled up herself into such a, such a furious anger that she comes bursting into this, this, this scene with Jesus and the disciples and Mary and she gives this tirade of abuse, not at her sister, but who? At Jesus himself. And she says, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? And then she even orders Jesus. She says, tell her to come and help me. Tell her to get off that cushion, to get her lazy bum up off the floor and get into the kitchen and get busy helping me. Tell her to deal with this situation in the same way that I am. So we move from this distraction into this distance and then into this distortion. Where, she, where Martha sees everything that she's doing in the kitchen as the right thing to be doing and looks at Mary and what Mary's doing in that sitting room with Jesus and sees her doing everything that is wrong and that she must do what she's doing. That Mary must be like Martha and she needs Jesus, the teacher, to tell Mary what to do. See, Martha's understanding of love here is totally conditional and I think the same is true for us a lot of the time it almost feels like we have been conditioned for conditional love where it becomes if we're not careful it becomes this transactional thing where we act like if I do this then they'll do that so we get distracted uh, by busying ourselves with all the things that we need to do a lot of the time distracted by the many things that aren't actually important and then we end up putting distance between ourselves and the thing or the person that is the issue, that is important. And then once that distance has been set, then we begin to distort what's real and what's true and what's important. And we see these tasks in front of us, the many things, the distracting things as the thing. And we distort it so that we don't actually see that the thing, the time spent with Jesus, 
the love received from Jesus by just sitting and being with Christ in our day-to-day lives, we distort that and we twist that around to make that be the lazy thing, that be the... um, the thing that perhaps we can do if we can squeeze time into it once we've finished with all the busyness in the kitchen. So our lives, are the rest of our lives are spent in the 23 hours and 59 minutes of our day each day are spent in the kitchen with the pots and pans, juggling and slopping around and banging things and huffing and getting ourselves worked up. And then if and only if we have that one minute left at the end of the day, then we might just perch our bum on a cushion long enough to listen to Jesus. But only if we've got all the kitchen stuff done. Whereas Jesus is saying, no, you've got it twisted, Martha. You've got this distorted. This distraction and this distance have distorted the view of reality. When in fact, the main thing, the important thing, the one thing is to be with me. Spend the 23 hours and 59 minutes sat on the cushion with Jesus. And then, and only then, if you've got time, use that minute in the kitchen. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. You see, Martha has become conditioned to live in this proof way of living and loving. And she wants Jesus to see all the things that she's doing as evidence of her love. And they're good things and they're right things and they're beautiful things, but they are not the thing. We do that sometimes too, don't we? Where we act and we think like, if they really loved me, then they would fill in the blank. God is and always will be, first and foremost, love. And that gets me back to 1 Corinthians 13. I just want to show that because God is love, we replace the word love here. And we say, God is patient. God is kind. God does not envy. God does not boast. God is not proud. God does not dishonour others. God is not self-seeking. God is not easily angered. God keeps no record of wrongs. God does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. God always protects. God always trusts. God always hopes. God always perseveres. God never fails. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. See, faith and hope and love aren't things that we do to earn or achieve. Faith and hope and love aren't cooked up in the kitchen with Martha. We receive them. We sit down on a cushion and receive them at the feet of Jesus. So many of us in so many ways are doers, aren't we? We like tasks and to-do lists and achievable goals. We want to do stuff. Give me something that I can do to fix this. Give me that bucket. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. You don't need the bucket. You need the cushion. You don't need that 
23 hours, 59 minutes in the kitchen. You need time with me. We need to sit down and just be and receive God's love. Because we can't breathe out. We can't be love for those around us. We can't give and we can't do unless first we sit down and be and breathe in and receive love. So no matter what's going on in your life and your circumstances right now, take a seat, sit down, simply be, receive the real and unconditional love. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Amen.